You know, as we come to uh, this message this morning, and we come to Romans chapter 3, you may think to yourself, if you've been here over the last few weeks, I've heard this one before. And why is it uh, that over the last few weeks, as we've been in the book of Romans, not only Paul keeps saying the same thing over and over again, uh, but then our pastors, whether that's Pastor Brian or one week it was Pastor Rick, keep getting up there and saying the same thing over and over. Well, I think uh, that Paul here says the same thing a few different ways, and each nuance that he attacks it with is important. But one of the things I think that is so challenging when it comes to these messages that we've been talking about is that the thing that we keep saying over and over again is not the easiest message for us to hear and to consider. In fact, you know this about our world and our culture. We live in a culture, we live in a world uh, where we take extra care not to offend others. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that that's a good thing, that we are working hard and trying to do everything that we can uh, to be uh, inclusive in our language and, and inclusive in a way in which we are not harming each other. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But when we are offended by something in our culture, when something hits us wrong and it's offensive to us, Often in our world right now, we will reject it immediately. And so it causes certain questions inside of us, questions that we're not sure how to answer. And when we're offended by something or someone thinks differently than us, um, we, we try to get rid of that as soon as possible. Bill Clinton recently said uh, something to the effect. He said, he said that we um, are more inclusive than ever but don't want to be anywhere near those who don't agree with us. And I think there's some truth to that comment. Uh, we are more inclusive than ever before as a culture, but also want to be further away from those who don't necessarily agree with us. And that's what I mean as a culture. We work hard not to offend, but when something hits us wrong and something sounds offensive to us, uh, we react as a culture. And so the challenge that we have with these messages, especially this message this morning, is I think that when it comes to what the Bible has to say, and when it comes to the gospel message, this is probably the most offensive thing that there is to our modern ears. What Paul says very specifically in Romans chapter 3 is something that for us in our culture, and even for those of us that have sat in church for quite a while, it just sometimes hits us wrong, and it generates within us a lot of questions. I've, uh, I've been recently listening to a, a lot of podcasts. That's something that I didn't do before, and I'm new to this podcast world. I finally got sick of sports radio. It took me a long time, but I'm sick of sports radio, so I've been in the podcast realm. And I've been listening uh, to a number of podcasts on faith and, and, and spirituality and one of them is done, one of them that I listen to is, is done by someone who actually grew up uh, the next town over from here. He grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts. He grew up in a church in Lexington, Massachusetts. He went to Gordon College, which is a Christian college up on the North Shore in Wenham, Massachusetts. And then he went on out of college to start in comedy. He was planning to be a pastor, and he decided to go into comedy for a little while. 
Now, 18 years later, he's completely left everything that he once believed growing up in the church. And he's very explicit about it in his podcast that he's walked away from it all and what he used to believe he no longer believes and what his, the course that his life was on to go to Bible school and to be a pastor uh, is something that he now uh, disagrees with. And there's another podcast I listened to recently uh, where the person on that was being interviewed is someone who grew up in the church and his, his dad was a big music leader in a big church in Phoenix. And I really happen to like this specific person's music. It's great music. But listening to him tell his story, he grew up in the church and he grew up doing all churchy things, grew up hearing the message over and over and over again, and now he's 40 years old and a great musician, but he very specifically is proud to tell you that he has left all of that that he grew up with. And what's interesting to me as I listen to these stories, and maybe you know, I certainly know people, if you've been in the church, I know people I grew up with that have gone a different way, or you know people that just refuse to, uh, don't want to listen to the message, don't want to believe the message. All that talk we did earlier about uh, at communion is, is confusing, and they, and, and they don't really want to hear it. We know all of those folks And the challenge is, it seems to me, as I listen to people's stories, and I'm really challenged by those stories that I hear in those conversations and on those podcasts, when I listen to people's stories and their conversations, it seems to me that one of the big reasons they walk away, or one of the big reasons they won't even consider Christianity, is because we are so offended by what we're going to talk about today. It's because what we're going to talk about today just hits our ears wrong. We don't believe that it's true, and it offends us. And so when it offends us and when it causes questions, we eventually decide it's not for us, or we eventually some walk away. And I think that even for some of us that have sat in the church for quite a while, What we're going to talk about today still hits our ears wrong. It's a challenge for us to wrestle with it. And so we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to walk through it together. And we're going to talk about uh, what we do with with the offensive part of it and how we answer the questions that it raises. So Romans chapter 3, this is what Paul is doing. Have you ever gone to a website and you have an issue with something on the website? And so this software is not working correctly, or you go to make a purchase, and it's just not going through. And you want to try to reach somebody, uh, but you're not allowed to reach someone until you visit a specific page. And that page is the Frequently Asked Questions page. You know the FAQ page, right? Before you can really talk to someone, before you can really interact with someone, you have to first go and you have to visit the Frequently Asked Questions page. Because what the developers of that website have done is they've said, inevitably, uh, we know some things aren't very clear, and inevitably challenges will happen. And so when those happen, 99% of the time, we can anticipate the question and go ahead and provide an answer uh, without even necessarily having to interact with the person. So if we can do that, let's go ahead and do that. Now here we are with Paul. And Paul started the book of Romans. And if you'll think back with me a couple of weeks, this is what he said. He said, I, Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as a follower of Christ, I have an obligation to preach the gospel. And what he means by the gospel, very quickly, is that the relationship between people and God is broken because of our decisions. 
And the only way it can be fixed, both here and now and in eternity, is by belief in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. And so Paul says, I'm obligated to preach this gospel message because I believe I have the answer to everything that ills our world and our society and us as individuals. So I believe that I have this answer. I'm obligated to share it. And then he asks this question, well, who needs the gospel? And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know. We said, well, Paul says, those who are far from God need the gospel. Those who are irreligious and immoral need the gospel. And then he turns around and says, well, those of you who are moral and close to God, you also need the gospel. And then last week, Justin uh, preached and did an excellent job and shared with us that Paul says, you need to be careful not to trust your affiliations. Just because uh, your grandma went to church and your grandma uh, went every single Sunday, or just because you were confirmed or you signed on the dotted line or, or you have the card and you're a member or whatever, you can't trust that to be enough. And so whether you're affiliated with a certain group or whether you're close to God or whether you're far from him, all of those people need the gospel, Paul says. Now, Paul knows that's going to raise some questions. That his audience in the first century, they're going to have some questions about that. And so what Paul does before he starts getting angry tweets or or emails is he goes ahead and heads that off at the beginning of Romans chapter 3 And he says, listen, I know you're going to have some questions, so let me help you out with some of those. You think in first century Rome, his audience is largely Jewish, and he knows the questions that they're going to have. Paul's a Jew himself, and so he asks these questions, and he begins to answer them. And this is what he says right there in the beginning of Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Here's the first question. So Paul has said, here's the gospel. You've got to trust in Jesus. Who needs it? Immoral, moral? People affiliated with a certain group, especially even the Jews. Then what advantage, this is someone asking Paul, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, this is Paul's answer, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then second question, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul's answer, by no means. Let God be true, even though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. Another question. But if our unrighteousness serves to show, that the right, to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Paul's answer. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner. Final question. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderly charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now you've probably uh, listened to those eight verses and you're saying to me, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Well, let me tell you what's going on. Paul's trying to anticipate some questions. Some of them are questions that we, want, we might ask. Some of them are questions that we might not ask because we're not um, first century Jewish people. But this is, exactly, this is exactly the questions that they're asking. They turn to Paul and they say, well, listen, is there any advantage to being Jewish? We are God's people. We've always been taught that there's an advantage to this. We've always been told we have an advantage. Paul, is there any advantage to being uh, God's chosen people or is there not? And we might ask a similar question. Well, Paul, if, there's, if immoral people need the gospel, 
And moral people need the gospel. And it doesn't matter if you're affiliated with the right denomination or church, then is there any advantage to even being a part of those things? And Paul says, absolutely. Because in those places, God gives us his word. In fact, to the Jewish people, God has given his word. And that word both tells us who God is and how God wants us to live. So absolutely, there's an advantage. When they say to Paul, they say, well, listen, you're telling us that we are unfaithful to the message, that we received the message, but we're unfaithful. Doesn't that make God a liar? And Paul says, no. We might ask similar questions. In fact, our world asks similar questions, doesn't it? When our world sees things done in the name of Jesus that are offensive and wrong, When the world looks at history and sees things like the Crusades and the Inquisitions and points to those and says, you see, that's what happens when people take this Jesus thing seriously. Bad things happen when people take the name of Jesus and believe in this 100%. What ends up happening is bad things. Take a look at at everything that's happening in the Middle East. It's all religion-based. It's all driven by religion. When people take this stuff seriously, bad things happen. So, Paul, you're saying to us... Uh, that we have God, we are God's chosen people, and we're not doing things right. So I suppose, by association, that makes God a liar. Just the same way we'd look at things and we'd say, well, if Christians are doing those things, and those things are wrong, then their God must be wrong. And Paul says, no, 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 no. God does not change. His nature does not change. His words do not change. Because those who are his people take his name and do something wrong with it. There's a great teacher and preacher named Ravi Zacharias, and he uses an illustration. He talks about a man named Simmerman who grew up in war-torn Yugoslavia. And he had been the victim of many things that were done by people who claimed the name of Christ. And so they were Christians who came in and in the name of Christ caused a great amount of devastation and a great amount of pain in his community. And so when he was older and a man named Yaakov came along and started preaching to him about the love and the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ, this old man, Simmerman, turned to him and said, how can you say that? I want nothing to do with that Jesus because everybody I knew who claimed his name came and caused me great pain and harm. And Yaakov said to him, let me put it this way. Let's say that I took your coat and I went and robbed a bank, Zimmerman. And then the authorities came to you and said to you, we know you robbed the bank. And you said, I didn't rob the bank. And they said, we know you robbed the bank. We know you're guilty. We saw your coat. And Zimmerman said, well, I would deny it. Just because they saw my coat doesn't mean I did it. And Yaakov turned to him and said, just because people are doing something with Jesus' coat on doesn't mean that's who Jesus is. And that's what Paul says back to these Jewish group. You're not changing who God is by your actions. God remains the same. And then this final answer. Will Paul, you said that we're saved by grace. And so if we're saved by grace, maybe we should do Uh, more bad things, so that there's more grace. 
if God gives us grace when we do things that are wrong, and he's glorified when he gives that grace to us, maybe, Paul, we should do things that are wrong so that God is more glorified. And Paul answers this one real quickly. He just says, no, you shouldn't do that. It's really not how we should go about this. But these are the questions that arose in the minds of the people. And so Paul tries to answer them, and then Paul finally gets to his big conclusion. And I think for us in our world today, this big conclusion is what we find most offensive. Not so much the affiliation thing doesn't necessarily bother us as much as it might have bothered them, but this, this is the one that can really get to us. And I think that our culture and our world, this is the one that makes them say, I don't think I want anything to do with following Christ. Here's Paul's big conclusion, verse 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's this one phrase in there that Paul says, and he's quoting the Old Testament, and he, he brings it out, and I think that phrase sums up exactly what Paul is saying here, and it sums up exactly what we find difficult to deal with in this passage, and that is Paul says these words. He says, no one does good, no, not one. And the problem that we have is that is the very starting point of the gospel message. The issue that we have is that if we're going to follow Christ the way that he calls us to, this is where we have to start, by saying no one does good, not even one. And there's something inside of us that says, wait a second. I do a lot of good things, and I know a lot of people that do good things. I mean, we as a church try to do good things. Last week, many of you brought donations for the blessing bags that are being given out at Waltham High School, and I delivered those this week, and the teacher there was very grateful for all of the things that that we brought in. And this week, right after the service, we're having a bake sale to support the Avon 39 Cancer Walk down in Boston as some people in our community participate in that. And those are all good things, aren't they? We as a church try to participate in good things. You're You're a good person. I try to be a good person. We know all sorts of people around us who really have nothing to do with Jesus, the people that we interact with at work, the people that we interact with in our communities, and they seem to be like good people. They want to be good people. They want to have good lives. And so then how it's almost, it is offensive to us in some way that the gospel begins here, that no one is good, no, not one, as I listen to people's stories in our culture, and as I talk to people in person, and I listen to them on my phone as I'm driving or wherever it is, this seems to be the thing that we just can't wrap our heads around. It seems to be the things that we don't want to accept, that no one does good, 
no, not one. In fact, I shared a couple weeks ago that uh, the Barna Research Group, which uh, came out with a new study in August 2015, and they asked Americans, uh, how many of you agree with this statement? It is always wrong for one person to criticize another person's life choices. It is always wrong for one person to criticize another person's life choices. 89% of Americans agree with that statement. It is always wrong for one person to criticize another person's choices. 89%. That's a lot of people. That's what our culture believes. That's what many of us believe. And so when Paul comes in, and says, no one does good, no, not one, and starts throwing out all these things that we should be changing in our lives and things that we should be doing differently, we initially, our culture, and even us, some of us that have been in the church, we say, Paul, where do you get off? In fact, many people would say, this is, see, this is what's wrong with religion. This is what's wrong. Religion takes one group of people and elevates them over another group of people, and they start pointing fingers and telling people what you're doing is wrong and what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is wrong, you need to change, and you and you and you and you and you up in the balcony too, you need to change as well. And, and this is what religion does. And many people in our culture, this is, this is what they would say. This is, the, this is the issue, you see? What Paul's saying right here is the big problem. And so much pain that's been experienced So much pain that's been experienced uh, by different groups in our culture, whether that is is racist uh, things that have happened in the past and currently, whether that is some of the injustice has been uh, experienced by by the LGBT community, some of the things that have been done, some of the things that have been said, people would look at this and they would say, yeah, see, this is the issue. This is the issue. What Paul is saying here, however, is something different than the way that we often take it. I think sometimes we're so initially offended by Paul's comment that we miss the point that he's trying to make. We're so worried that Paul and we are elevating ourselves over other people that we're missing what Paul is saying. And I think that in these verses, Paul is reminding us of two things. The first thing that he reminds us of is even when we're doing good works, sometimes our intentions are really not as pure as we would like to pretend. When Paul goes through these uh, verses and he's quoting a bunch of different Old Testament passages, he mentions how different parts of us are affected by the fact that we don't do good. He talks about our tongues and our feet and all sorts of things. And sometimes we ignore that many of our good deeds that we do are really motivated by a sense of selfishness that exists within us. Yesterday, my son, who is one and a half, was playing with a piano. It's a little toy plastic piano that he has over at his grandmother's house, and he was playing with it, and he was standing up, and he was banging on the keys, and, um, and so he's playing with it, and his cousin who is just almost a year old, came over and pulled him... He's over a year old. Sorry about that. He's over a year old. He came up, and he pulled himself up on the piano. And my son's initial reaction was not to welcome him into the piano-playing fold. My son's initial reaction was to raise his hand and push his cousin back. 
And no matter how many times we said to my son, you need to share, you need to, to let your cousin play with you, he would have none of it. This was his piano, this was his toy, and no one else was going to touch it. And we know that there's something inside of us, that selfish nature is inside of us, and it's just there. I didn't pull my son aside at some point and say, listen, don't you let your cousin take that piano from you. This is your piano. Like, no one taught him that. It's just there. And we spend all sorts of time, if, if you're around kids, you have a niece or nephew, you have a son or daughter, you, we spend all time with kids teaching them, uh, we don't really have to teach them what to do or, or what not to do, we teach them what to do. What not to do kind of comes naturally. To be selfish and to be mean. A lot of that stuff is just in us. And sometimes, many times when we do good deeds, there's really a selfish root to them. Tim Keller tells the story. He's a pastor and and author from New York. He tells the story uh, that was initially told by a a great preacher uh, from a couple hundred years ago named Charles Spurgeon. And the story goes that there was once a king, and the king had servants. And one servant was a gardener. And a gardener grew a great carrot. And the carrot was so great that he wanted to share it with the king. And so he came to the king and he said, listen, I've been a gardener for many years. This is the greatest carrot that I've ever grown. And king, I want you to have it. And the king looked at him and he, he was so blessed by the gift and so honored by the gift that he said to the gardener, he said, here are, the, here are my fields, my personal fields. Because you've given me these gifts, this gift, these fields are now yours to tend. And he gave the fields to the servant. Well, there was another servant in the room, a man who took care of horses. And he thought to himself, well, horses are much better than carrots. And so imagine if I gave the king my best horse. What might the king give to me? And so the next day he came to the king with a horse and he said, king, this is the best horse that I've ever bred. It's the fastest, strongest horse that I have, and my king, because I honor you and I like you, I'm going to give this horse to you. And the king let the man walk out of the room and took the horse. Now, the man was obviously upset about this because he expected the king to turn around and to say, well, take all of my horses and take all my corrals and you can take care of everything that I own, but the king just let him leave. And so he came back to the king and he said, what's... The deal, you gave the gardener all your fields, and you gave me nothing. And the king turned to the man, and he said, the gardener gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. And isn't that how a lot of our actions are? We do good things, but we're doing them in some way for ourselves. We want someone to pat us on the back and tell us we did a great job. We help the old lady cross the street because maybe she'll give us a tip on the other side. Or maybe she'll introduce us to her granddaughter. (laughs) Even our good deeds can be motivated by a selfish root. And so Paul's reminding us of that, that some of these things that appear to be so good on the outside, underneath, they're still very self-serving. And the second thing that Paul reminds us in these verses, and he does it there right in verse 9, is he says to us, listen, 
The message of the gospel does not elevate one group over another. In fact, when the gospel message is taken and applied so it elevates one group of people over another, it is being misapplied. All of those areas where the gospel message is taken and used to leverage power and used to leverage uh, authority and used to put down another group, anywhere that that gospel is used that way, it's being misapplied. The gospel doesn't raise up one group above another. The gospel, Paul says, puts us all in the same place. Jew, Gentile, close to God, far from God, sure of what we believe, Filled with questions and doubt. Paul says we are all the same. We are all sinners in need of saving. We're all the same. No one group above the rest. No matter how moral you are, you're in need of saving. No matter how immoral you are, you're in need of saving. No matter what group you're a part of, you're in need of saving. And Paul makes this point that the gospel levels us. It doesn't create different casts, as it were. Paul says that because of the law of God, because he has given us this word, we understand what he calls us to, and he calls us to perfection. And we also understand, when we try to live it out, that we can't do what he's asking us to do. And it would be like if we took three swimmers and we said to them, you all need to swim, all three of you need to swim from Japan to Hawaii. And the first swimmer made it five miles and then drowned. And the second swimmer made it 50 miles and then drowned. And the third swimmer made it 100 miles before that swimmer drowned. Which one of them is less drowned? (laughs) They're all the same, Paul would say. They're all the same. And it doesn't matter how moral we may be, we're all the same. Sinners in need of saving. We might turn to Paul and we might say, listen, ease up. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But we can do a lot of good things, but nobody's perfect. And Paul would turn to us and he would say, right, right. Nobody's perfect. And because we're not perfect, we need a Savior. Because even though we do good things, there's those things in our hearts that we know are there if we're honest with ourselves. We're still pretty prideful. We're still pretty selfish. We still use uh, people around us for our own gain. Because those things are there, if we're honest with ourselves, because uh, when nobody's looking, we might do things that we're ashamed of, Paul says. It doesn't matter how moral we are or immoral we are. We're all in the same place. We're all in the need. Of saving. Maybe you remember uh, the old Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor and the New Clothes. Do you remember reading that story? Remember hearing that story? The story goes that there was an emperor, and he was really into fashion and looking good. And so one day some men came, and they were con men, really. They, were, they came to him, and they said to the emperor, they said, uh, listen, we're going to make you the finest outfit that anybody has ever worn. But here's the deal. The Outfit is magical in a way that only those who are pure in heart and only those who are wise can actually see the outfit. 
And the emperor was, of course, intrigued, and he wanted to own this magical fabric. And so he said to them, sure, I'll pay you the money. It was a big sum of money. He paid the money. And the men went off, and they went to their looms, and they started, of course, to weave this imaginary fabric. There was no yarn in the looms. There was nothing happening. But they were, they were running them and pretending as if they were weaving. Well, the emperor got a little concerned, and he sent his chief officer to check on the progress. And the chief officer walked into the room, and the men were working the looms, but he saw no fabric. Well, the chief officer didn't want to appear impure or unwise. So he came back to the emperor, and he said, the emperor said, what does it look like? And he says, oh, it looks fantastic. It's the greatest uh, fabric I've ever seen. And the emperor sends a second chief officer to go see it. And of course, the second chief officer sees no fabric, but he doesn't want to be impure or unwise. And so he goes to the, to the emperor, and he says, it's, it's even better than the chief officer described it. And then the emperor himself goes, and he sees no fabric. But the emperor is not going to admit that he's unwise or impure. And so he tells them he's so excited. It looks beautiful. He can't wait to wear it. And so finally the big day comes for a big parade where the emperor is going to show off his new clothes. And the the weavers come, these con men, they come, and they dress him in the fabric. And there the emperor is, all natural. And he strides down the middle of the street in the parade. And the people cheer and clap. And even though everybody can see what's happening, everybody is willing to play the game and everyone's willing to pretend that this is the finest outfit they have ever seen until the crowd goes quiet and one small child says, the emperor has no clothes. And then all of a sudden, everyone realized it was true. The emperor was ashamed. The people were, didn't know what to do, were all of a sudden uncomfortable. And Paul's saying to us, listen, we can go along in a world being fooled to think that we're better than we really are. That you're good and I'm good and everybody's good and we're all doing good things. And Paul is in a sense here pulling back that veil and saying, We're not as good as we think we are. Nobody's perfect, and in fact, that's the exact point. Nobody is perfect. All of us are sinners in need of saving. And God loved us enough that he provided that solution through Jesus Christ. And in the next verse of chapter 3, verse 21, it all starts to shift. We stop talking about how bad we are and start talking about how good God is. That he would provide a way for us through Jesus Christ. And I hope that no matter where you are this morning, whether the idea that no one does good is, is, is offensive and causes a lot of questions, or whether you understand, you feel like you understand what Paul is talking about, my prayer for all of us is that we would be willing to consider the fact That we're not perfect. We're not perfect. And we can't live up to the standard God has called us to. But that we would at least consider the fact that God loved us enough that he sent his son to do what we could not do. And to live in a way that we could not live. And that through Jesus, he has made a way that we might be reconciled 
to him. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close this morning. And I'd invite you, if you would, just to bow your head in a moment of prayer with me. You know, Paul is saying this to us this morning. That the message of the gospel does not elevate any of us above anybody else. It puts us all in the same place. We are all in need of saving. We're all in need of God to come down and to show his love to us. None of us can live the way that we should on our own. And if we'd be willing to believe, if we'd be willing to trust him, our relationship with God can be restored both here and now and for eternity. And I don't know where you are with that this morning, whether that makes perfect sense to you or whether you still have a lot of questions. But no matter where you are this morning, I would encourage you to pursue it further, to pursue the God who loves you more, to spend more time in his word, to spend more time in his presence, to spend more time praying to him. And for those of us who have received the gift of Jesus Christ, may it never get old to us. May it never get old to us what God has done on our behalf. Sometimes it becomes something that we just say over and over again. Oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. May that never get old to us how lost we were, how apart from God we were, and how much God loved us enough that he would send his son. Would we never grow tired of looking at the cross? Would we never grow tired of looking at the empty tomb? But every time that we remember that no matter how moral we are, no matter how far we were from God, that God loved us enough to send his son that we might be reconciled to him. May that every moment that we think of that truth fill us with joy and invigorate us and encourage us to live the way that God has called us to live. May we be encouraged. May we be built up as we remember the God who loves us. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you have done on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. Your love is not contingent on what we do, but it rests on the actions of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you are good. Help us trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and join us as we sing one final song about our good God.